Hello and welcome back to Millennial Ag, where agriculture is always on tap and no topic is off limits. Thanks for joining us today, your co-hosts, Valley Mike Lee and Catherine Mottspeech. Listeners, I am so excited. Well, actually, maybe we should, <laughs> once again, once again, Valley and I are in different states. Um, Val's back in Colorado, but I jumped over to Utah this week to visit my family. <laughs> yeah, it's, I don't think we've ever been in the same state for more than like three days in the last six months. Six months, seriously. It's been, it's been like that, but it's good to see your face as always, Val. <laughs> Likewise, and I um, can't wait to celebrate everything we need to celebrate in, in person one of these days. There's a lot to celebrate, and Millennial Ag, we'll tell you about it next week on our Thanksgiving gratitude episode. But this week, I am super excited to finally bring you my parents, um, John Marie and I of Mountain View Dairy in Utah, and um, I, am, I am stoked to welcome them to the show finally. Um, we tried to have mom last spring, but we had technical difficulties. <laughs> but <laughs> listeners, you were treated to the one and only, the dynamic duo of, of my parents. Um, and we're going to be talking with them tonight about um, the, one of the largest decisions they've ever made in their lives, which has certainly had an impact on me and my siblings. Um, their decision to niche market, but on a large scale in their dairy operation. So we will jump all the way into this. Um, but first off, welcome to the show, John and Maria. Thank you, Catherine. Thank you, Catherine. And Val. <laughs> um, so let's start out at the very beginning, which the story goes back about 40 years. But I have here in my notes a brief history. <laughs> um, a brief history of where you started all the way up to where you're at now. Well, okay. <laughs> I grew up on a dairy farm in Connecticut and was never ever going to marry a dairyman because who needed that life? <laughs> and famous last words, right? Indeed. And I found John and he was in the midst of managing a 4-H project that had gone horribly awry and um, was just about to buy the cattle and equipment from the, um, from the, from the neighbor that he had worked for, for, oh, at that point, nearly a dozen years. And so in the early eighties, that's what happened. John bought the cattle and equipment and we rented the facilities and started out with about about a hundred cows and grew from there and we grew cows we grew kids we got to a point in Connecticut where we needed to either move from the the um, facility we were at and the other facility we were at, and the other one, and all of the fields. How many fields, honey? We rented land from like 1,500 acres of land from 35 different people <laughs> in 247 separate fields. So that gives you an idea of the acre size of each field. Jeez. Yeah, little tiny. So we... Um, 
we had a, a discussion and we weren't going to move because John's parents were close by and probably didn't want to see their only son go traipsing off to someplace like Vermont or Western New York or something like that. Maybe Virginia because it was warmer. Uh, and then his dad, who was an ag agent, an extension agent, came home from a tour and said, really, you should check out this place in Utah. Utah? <laughs> That's like foreign country. But uh, we did check out the foreign country and um, packed up our kids and our cows and we moved here in 1995. And we, to be fair, we didn't bring, we did bring all of the kids, but we didn't bring all of the cows. And well, um, most of them. Most of them, yes. <laughs> you and the herd that year. <laughs> yes, we did call, we did do a lot of culling. We, um, we moved into a surprise rented facility while we worked on building our own place. And in the spring of 1996, we actually started milking cows on our own dairy. And we grew from the 400, remember we started at about 100 and we brought 450 head with us. And, um, so that's about what we had when we started. And then we grew to 1,500 head and then we bought another neighboring dairy and um, added some more cows. And uh, after a while we bought another dairy and added some more cows. <laughs> and so now we're milking a lot of cows and, um, and doing things a little bit differently than we had in the past. So that's the story of how we got from there to here as far as geographically. Um, now listeners, in case you're not familiar with the dairy industry, the way that it works usually is that um, milk is marketed through a cooperative system. So um, many members are pulled together, their milk is pulled together, and then that cooperative sells it on to the next customer, usually a processor for yogurt, fluid milk, cheese, ice cream, any of those sorts of things. Um, so that's generally the model that I would say 99% of the United States follows, um, and certainly the model that mom and dad grew up on, um, you know, were raised in, uh, did all the way through Utah um, and, and all of our time here up until about five years ago when they decided to make a switch. And um, I think maybe we'll turn that over to dad. So we switched from what is the absolute total norm in the dairy industry to something wildly different. So we had the opportunity, uh, Dan and Yogurt was looking to have some producers that it had a little more contact with and involvement in what goes on on the on the farm, and they came to us and, and uh, through another company and asked if we would be interested in in, in working with them. And um, in the last since two thousand and nine, milk prices have been really really volatile, and from uh, having way short of what you need for money to operate to having barely enough to operate and it wasn't a lot of fun anymore. And we had to look and see if we were <clears throat> interested in our customer being more involved in our business and, and in kind of everything we do. 
um, from animal care and even the way we work with our employees and to be 100% transparent both ways. But we spent probably six months with the um, with, with the people that were buying our milk, sitting at our living room table, I mean, at various times, not for the whole time, and uh, seeing if we were a good fit for each other and decided it was. And it was January 1st, I think, of 2015 that we started selling milk to them. And, and as it, it has worked out very well. And as, as time goes on, they have decided that they have a market for yogurt made from non-genetically modified organism milk or non-GMO milk, which maybe I'll let Catherine and Maria pick on a little bit more here in a minute. But anyway, to, to do that, we had to commit to growing and buying 100% uh, non-GMO feeds. Um, it's our operation is audited by Actually, the whole thing is, is a company called Where Food Comes From, and Validus is the animal welfare and, uh, uh, what's the word I'm looking for, protocol, the ones that kind of supervise our protocols and, and look over our shoulders and see what we're doing. And they also have the non-GMO project, which is basically the people that certify all our paperwork that we do is up to snuff. So I guess my first question after we've gotten this history and have jumped kind of into to transitioning to niche marketing, why did you make the switch and, and what impacts has it had on like the family business specifically? Well, as we touched on earlier, the the way the dairy industry operates lately, especially, has been from uh, from high peaks to low valleys, and there's a huge amount of volatility and in milk pricing. In milk pricing, and if you can if you can manage that with your risk management program or your bank sticking with you or, or whatever um, you can get through it. And, and we had been through that cycle several, several many times. And, and as we got into the 2000s, 2009 was seriously difficult. 2000, um, 12 and 13 were. Let me just say, just, here, listeners, pardon me, mom, for interrupting. 2012, uh, my oldest brother had come back to the farm. My middle brother was working on his certifications and, and looking, coming back. And I had just started school. And certainly my goal was to come back to the farm. And dad, dad talked to us one day and he said, I'm not passing this on to you guys if it's like this. And that was not something that we'd ever heard from him. And he said, it's not because I don't want you to have it or because I don't believe in the business. It's because there is no way, this is not a life. This is not the life that I wanted for my children. The whole reason that we moved to Utah was so that you guys could have a good life on the dairy. And that wasn't going to be a possibility. And 
um, you know, having grown up knowing that our parents were doing what they did for us um, to make it so that we could have a place in the world if we wanted it. And then to hear that was pretty heartbreaking. Um, but then my parents, as they always do, <laughs> found a way. So, Valine, in, in answer to your question, some of the positive impacts have been our our income is, is consistent. Um, we get paid fairly for making for making the, the non-GMO milk. Uh, we know what's coming down the road. We know what's required of us, and um, it, it's wow. It's been very consistent and, and it's given us the opportunity to focus on cows and people and not on how you're going to pay the bank or you're going to pay the grain man. Um, those things, if you're doing what you say you're going to do and, and you've, you've planned ahead, you know what those costs are going to be, you know what your income is going to be, and you're able to manage it. And as I said, we're able to focus on the cows and the people that work for us. And and that makes dairying fun again when you're you're not hundred you're, you're always cognizant of money and you have to plan and you have to budget and you have to follow your budget but you know if you do you're going to be okay and it's made the dairy business fun again you're able to control or know what your your income is rather than waiting for the market that week to determine what your paycheck is going to be yes and the idea too from the other side is is the people procuring the milk know what it's going to cost. They, they know just exactly what it's going to cost them. The, the feed has been contracted and, and they know what their milk costs are going to be from, from year to year. They don't have the volatility either. Uh, there are some times that milk is, is cheaper and they probably could buy it cheaper. Um, every once in a while it goes the other way, but they also have a handle on, uh, on the, some of the outcomes of the milk. They, they know what's going into it. They know what's coming out. They get to have a say in, how we uh, take care of our animals and, and they demand a higher standard than, uh, than let's say what the rest of the world is because they demand accountability and, and they wanna be able to brag about where they get their milk from. And that's, I'm sorry, that it's kind of cool to have a company that wants to brag on where their milk came from and it's really, um, a pleasure for us to be able to brag on where our milk goes and um, and to be able to say to someone that you know if you want to if you want to be trying our milk try this product or that product and um, and it, it's that is um, something that we hadn't had an opportunity to do in the past with our other markets I guess my question is, is because you're with the non-GMO and the niche marketing kind of on a larger scale, that takes a major shift in, in sourcing feed, in tracking, tracking things and paperwork. What was that transition like? Because I think one of the hardest things for niche marketing, especially with my family in the small area we do it, in the beef industry is, is the paperwork. <laughs> you know, it's something we're not used to doing. Um, but what was that transition like? And, and I guess, where are you at in that process? And is it, is it become kind of habit now that it's already implemented? Yes, it has become habit and it's, it's, uh, 
It can be a headache, that is for sure. Um, the protocol, our, our animal welfare and our, our people training and things like that, um, we had that going to begin with. We already had, um, I guess we hadn't dipped our toe in it, we sort of splashed right in. And, and we already had a lot of written protocols and a lot of um, um, employee training uh, programs going. And so that part wasn't, um, wasn't so hard. You know, it, it took some fine tuning and things like that and a little bit of eye rolling about why do they want this or that or the other thing and how come we can't do it like we always have. It's always worked before. But we, we managed to get through that and the beginning uh, of, our, of our relationship fairly easily. And then, then came the request for a non-GMO source and... Um, and that I'll let John talk about that because paperwork doesn't even begin to describe that particular project. <laughs> Probably the one of the biggest challenges was um, we, we buy all almost all of our feed for the cows, uh, meaning the grains and concentrates and corn silage and alfalfa for hay. And so um, those all had to be sourced as non GMO. And we had several growers that we work with that valued the relationship enough. One, one of which was very happy to get his last pivot of alfalfa hay into um, uh, Roundup Ready, round, round ready alfalfa. And um, all of a sudden we come along and ask him to plow up 1,500 acres of alfalfa and switch it all to non-GMO alfalfa. And he did. And, but the milk buyer also, um, they, they stepped up to the plate and they helped pay the farmer for doing that, for doing the work. And then he had several years of, of yield loss because of all the new hay all at one time. And so anyway, between the milk buyer and our growers, they stepped up to the plate, redid their cropping systems to be able to supply the non-GMO forages that we need. And then um, the next thing was finding grains and, and uh, the concentrates we need, like soybean meal needs to be non-GMO, the corn needs to be non-GMO. And one of the challenges with that, for some reason, it wound up that most of these things end up coming by railroad now. And we had never really had to deal with the railroad before. And uh, that's been a little bit of a challenge because you get a trucking company that bring stuff to you all the time and hey the truck broke down or something or bad weather but we'll get another truck under a load and we'll get it to you and the railroad doesn't much care about stuff like that they're going to get the car to you when they get the car to you and if you've ordered a load of a rail car load of corn to come twice a week and we want two loads of corn every week for the whole year that's how we're going to do it and sometimes no cars come and then sometimes 10 cars come all at once and you better have a place to put the stuff and you better be able to unload it in two days. So that's presented some interesting challenges, but we're learning as time goes on how to deal with the railroad, how to take care of some of those things. But, but having the relationships with the growers that we did and their willingness to go with us has been something that has been key. And then there again, back to the milk buyer was willing to help the farmers and, and help take some of the financial burden of 
changing over and not making everybody wait two or three years to have a final payday. That's been a big help. And Val, you asked a little bit about the paperwork and certainly there is a lot more. It used to be that, you know, we bought some grain and we paid the bill and, and now everything, everything goes over the scale, scale in, scale out needs to match. We need to match uh, a load that comes in on a truck to a load that came out of a rail car that got loaded somewhere with a non-GMO certification. And how did that, how did that truck get clean? You know, was it, did somebody just look at it and say, yes, it was clean or did it get washed out? Did it get blown out? Did it get swept out? Did it, you know, you get down way deep in the weeds and the mud and the muck. And um, so the, you know, the non-GMO thing is people who are requesting it are quite serious about it. And, um, and we, we keep all of that information and it's kind of like the IRS. I think we keep it for seven years or something like that to um, make sure that everybody's happy. So we're, we're certainly not into the seven years on the GMO yet, but, or excuse me, non-GMO, but, um, but we're getting there. And um, yeah, it's, feed sampling and, yeah, and, and feed testing, sampling and, and, testing and, and then saving the samples and having them on hand for a certain amount of time. Yeah. It, um, it, it created a whole new, uh, a whole new position at say, our dairy. A job, that's yeah, right. so there we are. We're So, yeah, it has been an interesting path to have taken. So, I, oh, well, I was going to ask. You know, you we you transitioned all this paperwork. We're we're taking the next step in making sure that everything is non-GMO. Is this? in general, the future of ag, or is this specifically um, non-GMO? Like, is this where we're headed? And and you're now getting niche marketing, but say in 10, 15, 20 years, are you gonna be even with the rest of the industry and we've gotta find another way to innovate? Or, and especially with all the demands that, that consumers are pushing on us, where where do you see the future of ag going as far as like, what right now is the niche marketing. That's kind of where the, I mean, that's where the non-GMO came from is because there's, you know, that that's, there's a lot of genetic modification going on. And I, I think it's generally been a positive thing. There are some hiccups here and there, but like in the, in the case of Dan and they have a, a customer subset that is willing to pay for keeping things the, the way they were. And, Dannon in turn is, is willing to um, source that milk to serve its customers' needs. So we've had the opportunity to do that. And I would tell you, certainly working with them, if their needs change or they have other things they want us to do, we would do all we can to meet their needs to keep being a supplier of theirs. So it, you bring up a good point, Val. That it, it is a challenge, and and you know, is that the way ag is going to go? I I don't know. I would hope that people are 
open-minded enough that they understand that in many ways, the technology that, that creates that, that genetic tweak is a good thing. There are so many good things that have come from genetic modification and, and truly um, when, we, when we look back, you know, pretty much all of our, our advancements have come from natural selection genetic modification and, and moving it to a laboratory is a little um, concerning for some people, but, but you can control uh, the changes and, and use, you know, use those technologies to, um, for good in the world. And so I, I would hope that while there's always a place for that niche market, I wouldn't want to miss out on using the technologies that could make our, our food chain and our, and our, um, customers' lives better just because someone is, um, is so concerned about the, the laboratory part of life. And I would have to agree with that. I think I was watching or following Humans of New York um, on Facebook one time and they were in India somewhere and they went to this farmer and said, if there was one thing in this world that you could change about your practice, what would it be? And he says, I wish I could find a drought resistant crop. Yep. And that, those are some of the, those are some of the, certainly the positive aspects. If you can grow more feed with less water and, and then less inputs, those are, those are all good things. And, but from our, from our point though, we, we have a customer that's demanding something a little different. They have a market for it. And so we're very lucky to be able to supply that to them. So mom and dad, I've, I've been watching from afar for the last five years because when you guys made the switch, um, you made sure I was part of the conversation, but I started my own adventure, um, both in marriage and geographically. Uh, that's when I moved to Colorado. And so I've been hearing mostly from afar the changes that have happened um, and, and listening to, and lis listening and watching as, as all of this has unfolded. Um, what have been, maybe give us some of the high positives of the high positive impacts of this. And then maybe if you wouldn't mind, um, sharing a couple of things that haven't gone the way that you thought they would, um, you know, when you made this switch. So the high positives are of course, um, things that we've talked about already, the, the part where we can plan, we can actually, um, plan ahead, plan a project, be able to, to manage it. And we can talk to our bank and say, here's what's going to go. And, and it actually does, you know, that, that still surprises us, I think. Um, <laughs> we, so those things and, and the opportunity to, to still be in a business in, in an industry that we love um, has certainly um, been been a huge positive because if we didn't have this opportunity, we probably would have said we don't need this heartache and high blood pressure, and and we we would have uh, 
decided to do something else with our lives. And so those are good things. And if you you go to the, probably the biggest negatives, and and we we are detail-oriented people. We we like details. We we like to take care of them. But there's a lot more details than there ever were before and a lot of balls to keep in the air. And um, back to the, the, the paperwork and the protocols and following the protocols and proving that you followed the protocols. And that it's just, it's, we, we've learned to, we've learned to do it and, and take it in stride, but that's a lot of work. And it, that's it it's just a lot of work. And we have, um, we also have um, a tremendous team who works with us and, you know, consultants, of course, but, our um, our own family team has been super supportive and and willing to to help juggle all those things and and that has been that has been a blessing when we've had to struggle with some of that um, minute detail that that is um, a concern. Um, this I know that this is a little bit of a a sensitive place to go, but I, I think it's worth touching on. Um, you know, I've heard dad say several times over the years that way back when, when you and he went farming, <laughs> um, as, as the term was back then, that it was very important, um, for you guys to be involved, um, at the industry level, you know, local state and national. And you guys over the years have been active on many boards, um, on committees, on in, in many organizations across the board, name who you want, they've probably been a part of it. Um, and, and taking this, this route has certainly changed some of that. Um, would you guys be willing to share a little bit with us about that? And, and yes, <laughs> Catherine's right. It is, that's a tough subject. Um, we were um, both quite involved in in cooperative um, activities and things like that, and and um, the the cooperative we belong to for milk marketing was um, quite good at uh, communication and and keeping us connected with each other, with um, the different parts of our industry, you now be it political or or immigration, or uh, you know, just new, new and inventive things that were coming down the pike, and and the relationships that, especially I had there, um, walking away from those was was very difficult, and um, and I I still miss the people and the connections that we had then. And it's, it's not that we don't have connections with our, um, you know, with our fellow dairymen still, but when you, it's an interesting thing when you don't market to the same place, um, there seems to be a divide. And, and that, that is a difficult thing, especially for someone who is, as focused on relationships as I am. And there's people that outwardly said that what we, what we were doing should be banned and you ought not to be able to make deals with suppliers. You, you need to stick with the, 
with the co-op way and there's been people that don't talk to us anymore but um, it just amounted to there was a for us a, a customer out there that had a need and we were able to fill it and it's worked very well for us so it's you do miss some of the relationships with your fellow dairymen but it's also good to be secure in what you're doing it's nice to be able to have a next generation of dairymen coming along and and know that you can you're building something that they can be a part of as well i really appreciate that point of view and not taking maybe the cool kid route um and following the norm and doing what's difficult but what secures the business what's sustainable for the business for your family um i really appreciate you you sharing some of those those challenges and those you know what it feels like to to rock the boat or shake up the status quo or do something that's maybe a little different than than what the general general population is and i think for millennial ag i think that's something that especially our generation um can take take away from this more than anything but as we kind of head towards the end of this episode where do you i guess what advice do you have for the next generation of of dairy farmers of agriculturalists um, that are wanting to stay in the business that are wanting to fight for fight for agriculture and that are wanting to be productive um, and profitable for the next hundred years well I, I one thing I would think is if, if you want to be in the agricultural business is, is whatever it is any kind of animal agriculture or cropping um, is find out what a customer wants, what, whatever customer, whoever you want to be your customer, find out what it is they want and then find a way to provide it for them. And, and um, I guess that's the big thing is to find out what they, what the customer wants and find out how you can provide it for them. Maybe differently or, or better or just the way somebody wants it. And I, I think that's one thing that really helped us a whole bunch, Maria. <clears throat> that is true, that that has helped us a whole bunch. Um, I advice to young people, it is not an easy road to go down to be involved in agriculture. It seems especially now, and especially with all of the instant connectivity that we have, people always have something to say about what they're eating or how it's grown or, or how it's produced or how it's harvested. And, um, and that, that is hard. So I would, I would suggest maybe having a thicker skin than I do. <laughs> um, <laughs> <laughs> to um, you know, to manage through that and and help people understand that you're not trying to, um, to to uh, you know, destroy the earth or or harm an animal or or hurt somebody's child or something like that. You know, all these horrible things. Um, so you need to you need to be able to to stand up for yourself and to say why you do what you do and to say that with pride and and to be willing 
as John said, to explore different ways to do things. Um, that's a, you know, you need to be able to do that too. But, but don't be ashamed ever that you are involved in agriculture and in feeding people because uh, there are lots of things in this world that we don't need, but food is a thing that we do need. And, and in addition to food, we need each other. And so finding a way to build a relationship uh, with, a, with a food processor and with your customers and, and people who eat what you grow every day I think that that's an important thing to do as, as you grow in your ag business. Listeners, before we wrap, um, I just want to tell you that it is an honor and a privilege to have my parents on this podcast and uh, I thank them very much for coming and for, for daring to take a chance on, on something different. Um, and that includes millennial ag. <laughs> Um, but I think you guys are great. So that's good. <laughs> Thank you, Mom. Did you hear that? We're great, according to my mom. <laughs> <laughs> that's all that, that matters in this world. <laughs> and, um, you know, I, I think that if we have half the guts, the brains, and the daring that, that my family has, um, that you can go anywhere you want in life. And so thank you very much, very much to you both for joining us today. And we will absolutely welcome you back um, as guests and friends of the show. Thank you very much. It's been fun to visit with you too. Thank you. Thanks to thanks for inviting us on. It has been fun listening to the wide range of topics that you guys try to cover. And it even gets uncomfortable to listen to sometimes, but I, I appreciate that you do that. And I try to make sure I'm off by myself either driving a truck or on the forklift or something like that, that I can have uninterrupted time so I can listen to the whole conversation. They go by pretty quick. So I have enjoyed listening to you guys as well. Thank you. Well, thank you guys again for coming on. And it's, it's, a, it's a privilege and an honor just to hear your story. And I think any one of the topics we kind of brushed over today, we can come back and dive into a little bit more. I'm at a later date, but listeners, we also want to thank you for tuning in to this week's episode of the Millennial Ag Podcast. You can uh, find us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram, and you can email us at talktous at millennialag.com. Until next week, we are Millennial Ag. <laughs>